0: We're going to sing uh, Fairest Lord Jesus in the body of this sermon, number 72. So if you could kindly mark that in your hymnal, keep it near to you, then when we're ready to sing Fairest Lord Jesus, it'll be right there without much of an introduction being necessary. Glad to see you tonight. Always glad to see uh, people, God's people, assembled to receive his word in the power of his spirit for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Lord, how rich victors we are in Christ, for we are saved, and we love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, we would ask that as we look at these verses in Romans 2 tonight, that we would be mindful of people perhaps in our houses that are not yet saved, people perhaps in our families that are not yet saved, people at our workplaces who are not yet saved, people in our island, on our island, and on the family islands that are not yet saved. Lord, you've delivered us from the hollow forms of religion to have a relationship with you. May we uh, bask, worship, and thank you in this relationship this evening. Hide me, Lord, and magnify yourself by the workings of the Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' precious name together, amen. Religion and salvation are two different things. The religious man thinks that he has something to offer God for salvation. The saved man thinks he has nothing to offer God for his salvation. Religion is about what the person does for God. Salvation is about what God does for the person. Religion depends on behaving Salvation depends on believing. Religion sees the sufficiency being in character. Salvation sees the sufficiency being in Christ. Oh yes, religion and salvation are vastly different. And tonight as we come to Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, we're going to see the Holy Spirit through Paul argue that Jews without Jesus stand condemned. Jews without Jesus stand condemned. The reason Jews are cited in these verses is because the original readership largely was Jewish, and they needed to understand that religion did not equal salvation, and their countrymen, who were banking on religion and covenants and ritual and and the like, were not yet bound for heaven, because a birth certificate doesn't make a person bound for heaven. A rebirth certificate makes a person bound for heaven. And so if you'll turn your attention to Romans 2 verse 17, I want to read the end, to the end of the chapter with you this evening. Romans 2 verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In verses 17 and 18, the first two verses of the passage I've just read, I see our first point tonight, namely the privileges of the Jews. The privileges of the Jews, and they are and were many. The privileges of the Jews. Here are five that I see in verses 17 and 18. As you let your eye drift down on those two verses, 17 and 18, please see five privileges of the Jew. Number one, reliance on the law. I see that in verse 17a, privilege. Number two, boast in relationship to God, the second half of verse 17, privilege. Knowledge of God's will, I see that in the first part of verse 18, privilege. Approval of the excellent, the second half of verse 18, privilege. And instruction in the law, the third part of verse 18, privilege. And will you please notice with me that there are several Present tense verbs in verses 17 and 18 and 19. Rely is a present tense verb in 17. Boast, present tense, verse 17. No, present tense, verse 18. Approve, verse 18. Present tense. Instructed, present tense, verse 18. And confident, verse 19. Present tense. In all cases, these are present tenses of the habitual. They're describing present tense action, which is in fact a habit. You might say it this way. The Elliots take their garbage out to the curb on Monday nights. That is a habit. We do that every Monday night. Habitually. The religious Jews back then, when this letter was written to the Christians in Rome... The religious Jews back then habitually relied on the Mosaic law and they habitually boasted that they were close to God and they habitually claimed to know God's will in matters and they habitually approved the law and deemed it to be essential and they habitually instructed in the details of the law and they were habitually confident that they served as guides to the spiritually blind Gentiles. But there was a fly in the ointment. There was a hiccup in the engine. These Jews of privilege hated, despised Gentiles. They hated them. These were privileges they had, but they didn't live up to the responsibilities that were attendant to those privileges for them as Jews. They lacked a genuine faith in the God who gave them the law, and they settled and were content to be religious. Of course, there are religious people all around us today, and they're not all Jewish. There are religious people all around you today, and some of them could actually come to a service like this evening's in a Christian church religious people. And now from the Jews' privileges, we go on in our passage to point to the professions of these religious Jews. The professions of these Jews. What did these religious Jews openly profess to be true? Well, verses 19 and 20 tell us what they professed to be true as religious Jews. Five professions they made, let's read uh, 19 and 21st, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and of the truth. Number one profession these religious Jews made, they profess to be guides To the spiritually blind. That's in 19 part A. Second profession, they professed to be light to those who were in spiritual darkness. The second part of verse 19. Third profession, they professed to be instructing correctors of the foolish. Verse 20 part A. Number fourth, number four profession they made, they professed to be teachers of the spiritually immature. Second half of verse 20. And last, they professed to be custodians of the laws, knowledge, and truth, the last part of verse 20. But as I said, there was a big problem, a hiccup in the engine, a fly in the ointment, a blemish on their faces. They hated Gentiles. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. In the Abrahamic covenant, Abram was told by God that through his seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The Jewish people from the get-go were to be missionaries to the Gentiles, but they hated them. They called them dogs. And when Jews called Gentiles dogs in the New Testament, they weren't thinking of fuffy, shampooed and trimmed and groomed little cute dogs, lap dogs. They thought of those forsaken dogs we see wandering around town. It's sad to see them for me and my family. flea infested diseased, garbage-eating, angry dogs, mistreated dogs. That's how Jewish people saw the average Gentile. They saw that person as a dog, not as a mission field. And accordingly, these religious Jews who settled for form and not reality with Yahweh God, these Jews lived like isolated, arrogant snobs. Time and time and time again, these particular Jews stubbornly refused to answer Yahweh's call to them to be world missionaries, to the Gentiles, because they hated them. The missionary reluctant, that's an understatement, the reluctant Jewish missionary to Nineveh and its Gentiles, of course, was Jonah. At first, he didn't want to take the truth to the Ninevites because he was terrified of them. They were the Isis of the ancient Mediterranean sea basin, lopped off people's heads and made pyramids out of human heads that they conquered. At first, Jonah was a reluctant Jewish missionary to Gentiles because he was really scared spitless. But eventually, his heart was revealed in a book that it wasn't just a fear for his own life that was an impediment for him taking the gospel to Gentiles, was he hated them. He didn't want to see them get right with God. And when there was a massive revival with this very short sermon given by God, when he walked around the top of the flat wall of Nineveh and said that a number of days God would judge Nineveh unless they repented, and there was a massive turning to the true and living God by these Gentile Ninevites, He was ticked. The Jewish missionary to the Gentiles was not happy at all that people found salvation and relationship with the true and living God there in Nineveh. And so he goes on the outskirts of town, and you know the story perhaps. He pitches his pity party, and he pouts outside of Nineveh, basically telling God, you made a big mistake here pardoning these people. They're not Jewish, and they're nasty people. How could you do this, God? And you know what happened? God raised up a gourd. Gourds grow fast as it is, but God who made the gourd made it grow extremely fast. And this gourd with its broad leaves grew up over this ticked off and angry Jewish prophet and gave him shade in the scorching sun of the day. And he thought, oh, I love this gourd. This is a great gourd. And then God withered the gourd, to make his point. And Jonah got so angry, so despondent, that he was actually suicidal. It's better for me to die than to see these Gentiles come into right relationship with you, God, and you took away this gourd. I liked it. And God says, how can you have pity on a plant and have no pity or compassion on human beings who happen to be Gentiles? Maybe there's a little Jonah in some of us. But Jews who refused to obey God and to take the truth about the true and living God to Gentiles were a bit like the fat fitness trainer. Or like the driver with cruise control on who gets pulled over for going 40 miles per hour over the speed limit. A missionary who refuses to be a missionary because he's a pompous, arrogant Jew is like the medical doctor who chain smokes. Like the financial planner who declares bankruptcy. Like the cop who has done time in prison. It's incongruous. It was incongruous, it doesn't fit, it doesn't line up, it's not right for someone in the Jewish heritage who knew the true and living God was the beneficiary of the covenants of God, not to share the mercy and the love of God and the hope of God to the people he was sent to take that message to, the Gentiles. And oh yes, this passage clearly addresses these religious, pompous, arrogant, unconverted Jews. And by secondary application, church family that I love, this passage also addresses any of us who cling more to religion than to Jesus, and who have a partiality and a prejudice about who really we want to be in heaven with. And so, these religious and unconverted Jews, we've seen that they had privileges. To review, they had the privileges of a reliance on the law, a boast in the relationship with God, a knowledge of God's will, an approval of the excellent, and an instruction in the law. But that was not all. These unconverted, pompous, religious Jews also made certain professions of things to be true. They professed that they themselves were guides to the blind. They professed that they themselves gave light to the darkened. They professed that they themselves instructed the foolish. They professed that they themselves taught spiritual infants, and they profess that they themselves possess the laws, knowledge, and the truth. But the problem was they hated Gentiles. And now we go on to our third point tonight in these verses, and it is that Paul's prosecution of these Jews, Paul's prosecution of these Jews Uh, The prosecuting attorney in the courtroom of heaven is the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul prosecuted these arrogant, pompous, uh, provincial Jews who had religion gladly, but really had no relationship of love or faith with God. Listen to the prosecution that God the Holy Spirit had Paul the Apostle write in the Scriptures in verses 21 to 23. You, therefore... Who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, even excuse me, through your breaking of law, do you dishonor God? Prosecution, prosecution, prosecution prosecution. Again, five is the number here. There are five indictments against these particular Jews in these particular verses. Indictment one, they were not subject to the law which they taught to others. They were not subject to the law which they taught to others. Verse 21a shows us that. Number two, they were immoral thieves. They were immoral thieves, verse 21, second part of the verse. Indictment three, they were immoral adulterers. That's the first part of verse 22. Indictment four, they were hypocritical money grubbers. They were hypocritical money grubbers, verse 22, second part. Specifically, they didn't tithe. There were three tithes under the law for the Jew of the Old Testament. Three tithes, two were 10% tithes annually, and the third tithe was an every third year tithe. And so under the law, the Jew was to tithe 23 and a third percent annually. But they didn't. They talked a good game, but they didn't play a good game. They were hypocritical money grubbers. They didn't tithe. Fifth indictment against them, their disobedience dishonored God. That's verse 23. Their disobedience in these things dishonored God, who they claimed to know, but they didn't really know. They just kept as a parachute. They kept God as a parachute. They kept God as a uniform. They, they kept God as a calling card. They, they kept God as insurance. Now, we might understand all of this in this way, I think. The Jews possessed the law, but the law didn't possess the Jews. The Jews, oh, they possessed the law, but the law didn't possess the Jews. Now, unless we look down our spiritual Gentile noses on our spiritual Gentile high horses, do we not possess the Holy Spirit if we're saved? but have times when the Holy Spirit does not possess us. Are there not times when, although we possess the Holy Spirit, there are times when the Holy Spirit does not control us? I think of my own flesh patterns. When I'm not controlled by the Holy Spirit and instead I'm controlled by my flesh, what it looks like is I get a critical spirit I get a discouragement. I get a sharp mouth. What are your flesh patterns? They're unique to each one of us. When we are not controlled by the Holy Spirit, we are going to succumb to the deeds of our particular tailor-made unique DNA flesh. Sure. We possess the Holy Spirit if we're in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We possess the Holy Spirit as much as him as we'll ever get, the point of conversion. But how much of us does he possess to control any given moment? Unless we look down our Gentile spiritual noses at these formalistic Jews of Romans chapter 2, could we not additionally say that although we possess the Bible, all of it, which they didn't possess all of it, by the way. We possess all of the Bible. Does the Bible possess us? Is it that we go through the Bible in a year, or does the Bible go through us? Or do we say, when God's word is before us in our quiet time, or as we do our devotions with our spouses, or we come to a setting like this and the preacher expounds the word of God or we hear the word of God being taught on the radio or the television, is it that we sometimes say, well, that doesn't apply to me? Uh, it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> it applies to Sally. Oh boy, Sally should hear that. She really should. Do we possess the Word of God, but the Word of God does not possess us? Do we, in some measure, go through the Word of God, but the Word of God is never allowed to go through us to change us? And so, in this passage tonight, we've seen that Jewish people back then had certain privileges, they had certain made certain professions, they uh, were prosecuted by the prosecuting attorney, the apostle Paul, who was writing under inspiration from God, but there's more to see here in this passage. Fourth point, the Jews profaning God. That's something we ought to see here in this passage. Verse 24, please. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. The name of God, and any red-blooded Jew would understand this, the name of God stood for all that he is, his character, his attributes, his Uh, will, his decree, for the name of God is blasphemed, made ordinary, made crass, made usual among the Gentiles because of you, religious but unconverted Jews. Ouch. The Jews profaning God is the fourth point in our outlines tonight based on verse 24. And the question to me that comes screaming out of verse 24 seems to be, when God's Old Testament people dishonored him, what did the world's people do? When God's covenantal people, the Jews, blasphemed God's name, what did those outside of the covenant community of being Jewish do with with God? Well, Isaiah 52, 5 is one Summation of what happened when God's people, the Jews, dishonored him and how the Gentile unbelievers responded. Isaiah 52.5 describes this kind of a very sad situation when Judah was on the verge of falling into 70 years of Babylonian captivity due to flagrantly, repetitively dishonoring their God. Isaiah 52.5, God speaking, now therefore... What do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? God is saying, you're going into Babylonian captivity and you think for no good reason? God continues. And again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. God brought judgment on Judah, 70 years worth in Babylon captivity because the Jews who were covenantal people to be in relationship with God in obedience, humility, and worship weren't living properly. And the result was that all the Gentile nations that observed this high-handed sinning by God's people howled, mocked blasphemed, made ordinary, compared to idols, the true and the living God. Clearly, when God's Jewish people of the Old Testament dishonored God, the pagans observed it, and they dishonored God more. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, we are God's people. We are God's new covenant people. We are different than the Jews, but Jews can come to saving faith in Yeshua Messiah and be born again as we are. But we are distinctively different. We are the church, called out ones, the ecclesia, recipients of the new covenant. We celebrated the new covenant with the Lord's last supper this morning. What about us? who have entire Bibles, complete Bibles, the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which Jews in the Old Testament had neither. They had neither a completed scriptures, nor did they have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have both. What about us? What about us if we would dare to dishonor God as the church? I'll tell you what happens. When the people of God dishonor the true and living God, Satan's crowd dishonors him even more. That's a responsibility because we are the only Bibles that some lost people are reading presently. Please hold your places in Romans 2 and go with me to Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through Matthew as a family of three, verse by verse, at dinner times, and we've just finished the Sermon on the Mount. What a sermon that was. No wonder the people who heard it Chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, consecutively, one sitting, one sermon, they said, my, teaches with authority. And in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, what happens when God's people dishonor God and, the, and Satan's crowd who watch God's people, what happens? Matthew 5, 13 to 16 tells us, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a the peck measure, but on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We don't want to put the light Jesus Christ has deposited into our lives under the peck bushel measure, the basket. We don't want to lose our saltiness to inhibit corruption and rotting in our society. Because when we do, when the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, ceases to be salt, ceases to be light, puts a basket over the light who is Jesus Christ that we are to be reflecting, then the world around us gets worse, much worse. Our Lord Jesus alluded to this principle in this sermon that we've just touched down upon. Jesus again said that if you dishonor me and my truth and become tasteless salt, become covered over lamps, curtail good works, which I have planned for you to do from eternity past, then lost men and women and kids will not come to know God or to glorify him. That is serious business. I'll never forget the person who came to me in tears in another pastorate. Said they shared their faith with their coworker, including the ramifications for not taking Jesus Christ as Savior before you die—hell. And the coworker looked at the person who came to me from our church family in tears, and that coworker said, "If this is true, why haven't you told me about this a long time ago?" Israel had been profaning God by the time that the Holy Spirit had Paul write scripture to the Romans. May we not profane our lovely Lord, our holy Lord. May we not profane him in our speech, in our thoughts, or in our deeds. May we not leave unsaid what he wants said. May we not leave undone what he wants done. May we not profane our Savior. Romans 7, 2, 17 to 29 is titled Religion Without Salvation. We've seen the privileges of the Jews. We've seen the professions of the Jews. We've seen the prosecution of the Jews. We've seen the Jews profaning God. And fifth in your outlines, we now see the rituals of the Jews, the rituals of the Jews, verses 25 to 29. For indeed, Circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And if therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, capital S, by the Holy Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. The rituals of the Jews. In these particular verses I've just read, the particular ritual that is cited as an illustration and teaching point is circumcision. And the Jews uh, took their refuge, their safety blanket, in their religious rite of circumcision. But they were content with the sign of covenant without keeping the covenant. They were content with the sign of the covenant without a saving faith in the giver of the covenant. And can't we just get so religious ourselves if we're truthful and honest? Can't we just get so religious and do about the same? Maybe not with the, the rite of circumcision, but can't we get ever so religious today to other rituals that we could cling to that would be instead of simple, childlike, saving faith in the finished work of Jesus. What rituals, Pastor Rob? Christening, I hear people say, we want to get the baby done. Confessing sin to a human priest. Ritual. Giving some things up for Lent. Ritual. Ashes smeared on foreheads. Ritual. Receiving last rites. Ritual. Blessing pets in worship services. I love my pet, but you're not going to see him in this sanctuary getting blessed. I had some English friends. We had some English friends the last place we lived, second last place we lived, and they were very nice friends, and they were Anglican or Episcopal. I believe the wife was born again, trusting Christ alone. I'm not so sure that her husband was. But they were walking down the street one Sunday afternoon with two big English sheepdogs. And they say, oh, Pastor Rob, good afternoon. We had Ozzy and Binky to church this morning, and the priest blessed them. What do you say? So I said, well, they do seem to have a special glow about them. (laughs) (laughs) Ritual blessing pets and worship services, lighting candles as a certain grace, uh, saying our, our fathers, genuflecting, praying with beads. All of these things are more about ritual than about a relationship, a living relationship, a growing relationship with a risen Christ. They are more about a church and a dogma than about scripture. They are pseudo, fake, Man made refuges. They are not the real McCoy, authentic, genuine, sufficient, strong tower of the Lord. Jesus Himself is the strong tower of the Lord we cling to. And so please hear me, dear family. Nothing but God's grace, activated by total trust in God's Son, will gain us peace with God in heaven one day. No ritual. No religiosity can do that. My favorite golf tournament, I I do a little golfing because it boosts my prayer life. I'm so lousy. My favorite golf tournament is the Masters. Early spring, Augusta, Georgia. Those beautiful azalea flowering bushes bordering the pristine golf greens. And the master's champion of the tournament is always fitted for a handsome green jacket. The green jacket at Augusta is a ritual, a ritual which is only meaningful if the man wearing the jacket at the end of the tournament is actually the tournament's champion. If some employee of the golf course got into the closet with the green jackets and put on the green jacket, It would be hollow. It would be a sham. It would be worthless because the man inside that green jacket may not be able to even hit a golf ball 100 yards. Ritual, not the place to rest our confident trust. 28 and 29 again, "'For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, "'neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh.'" But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. One can most definitely have religion without salvation, Nothing, again, I say it again, nothing but God's grace activated by one's total faith in Christ's person and work can bring a sinner peace with a sinless God and a forever home in heaven with that wonderful Lord and Savior. Nothing. And so I wonder what you have. I believe tonight that the vast majority of us here this evening have salvation and not merely Religion. Salvation takes us up, but ritual takes us down. Now let's move it off of the question to you, my brothers and sisters tonight. Let's move the question more broadly. Which of the people who are the closest to you, which of those people have religion, and which of those people have salvation? It could be that the person who sleeps in your bed as your mate only has religion and not salvation. It could be the person that sits beside you in the pew Sunday by Sunday only has ritual and not yet salvation. It could be the person in the work area beside your work area Monday to Friday has ritual but not yet salvation. That is huge. That is causes us great responsibility, that we would not be like a Jonah who wants to pick who he's in heaven with to hang around with, that we wouldn't be here and there spotty, inconsistent, partial about who we share the good news of Jesus Christ with and who we don't bother to do that with. When we look at these verses that really say there's such a thing as religion that isn't saving, there's such a thing as ritual that doesn't bring a genuine salvation from sin, we need to consider the jewel of our Savior. We need to ponder afresh the beauty of our salvation. It was Englishman John Wesley, the 18th century evangelist and founder of Methodism, who had religion long before he had salvation. John Wesley grew up in an Episcopalian or a Church of England Anglican family. He became a deacon at the tender age of 22. He was ordained an Episcopalian priest at the age of 25. And he embarked on a three-year missionary journey from England to Georgia in what is now the United States at the age of 32. However, it was not until John Wesley met some German Moravians on the ship traveling back to England from Georgia that he was first introduced to the concept of salvation being by faith in Christ apart from merit or human effort. Later, after landing in England, a Moravian, Peter Bowler, led John Wesley to salvation by faith alone when he already had been a very religious man. Wesley was 35 years old. Would you bow your heads with me and take your hymnals in hand and turn and open them to 72, number 72. We want to make this our prayer. We want to sing this to Christ. We want to worship tonight that we are delivered from religion and saved, justified, sanctified, one day glorified, bought out of the slave marketplace of sin by the precious blood of Christ set free from that slave marketplace of sin, never to have to return to it again. Freed from that slave marketplace of sin that we would do the bidding of our Lord and Savior to bring honor and glory to him as clay vessels. Sing with me, 72.
1: Fairest Lord Jesus, Ruler of all nature, O Thou of God and man the Son, Thee will I cherish. soul's glory, joy, and crown. Please stand with me and we'll have the music join us on verse two. Fair are the
0: cherish you. May it show up in every aspect of our lives. May those who meet us and talk with us and see us live have no doubt that unequivocally you are our highest good, our most valuable treasure, our hope, our stay, our gift, our ambition. I thank you for each believer standing in your presence this evening. I thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed each with the blood that you willingly shed on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would grow dearer and dearer to us as we spend time in your word, as we obey you and do the deeds that you've charted out for each of us to do. I pray that our prayer times with you would be rich, full, that you would speak into our lives the truth as we pray, and that we would unburden ourselves in trust for you to look after the things that are of concern to us and for you to bless. Lord, thank you that we are not religious, but thank you that we are saved. We pray these things knowing you hear us, knowing you love us, knowing you're coming back again for us, We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your fair and beautiful name. Amen.